Hi everyone, it's so good to be able to be with you again in this way today. For those of you who are members of the Pinelands Baptist Church, a special greeting to you. I know that some of you can't be with us in person, and we are thinking of you and praying for you today. And then greetings to people all over the country and in various parts of the world, I believe, who are listening to this sermon I may not know you, but I have been thinking of you and praying for you. And wherever you find yourself today, I pray that God himself, through the power of his Holy Spirit, would come and through his word speak very deeply and personally into your life today. Today is the second part of our look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 19. And in this section, Peter addresses the topic of suffering as a Christian uh, one last time in this letter before moving on to some final topics. And we saw in our last sermon that what Peter says to us is vitally important. It's an important part of our Christian beliefs, the idea that suffering as a Christian is normal. And it's also an important part of our Christian practice, Peter has some really practical, down-to-earth advice for us in terms of what to do when we are persecuted. So, let's have a look again at 1 Peter chapter 4, from verse 12. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed. But praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Last time we saw how in these verses Peter gives some do's and don'ts when it comes to suffering for being a Christian, as well as more general suffering too. He says that when persecution and suffering come, don't be surprised. Don't be ashamed. Don't meddle. Make sure you are suffering for your faith and not for your failings. Instead, do rejoice. Not in the suffering or persecution itself, but rather rejoice in what they signify and in what they are achieving. Rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ. Rejoice that your joy will overflow when he returns. Rejoice that you are blessed in the present. 
Rejoice that the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. But Peter moves on to give us another five things that we are to do when suffering and persecution come our way. I'll label these one to five, although in the larger context, they're really numbers two to six. But first, when suffering or persecution come, glorify God in Christ's name. Verse 16. If you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. Literally, verse 16 reads, If you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but glorify God in that name. It's not just semantics. There's quite an important difference. It's not just praise God that you are called a Christian, but rather glorify God in the name of Christ. The Apostle Paul captures the sense of what is said here in two of his letters. He writes to the Colossians and says, And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And similarly, he writes to the Corinthians and says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. When Peter says, glorify God in that name, he means that if you are being persecuted and mocked as a Christian, or if you are going through suffering as a Christian, you must continue to speak and act in such a way that God is honoured in your life. I like the way in which Pastor John Piper speaks about glorifying God in that name. He says, Glorifying God means showing by your actions and attitudes that God is glorious to you, that he is valuable, precious, desirable, satisfying. And the greatest way to show that someone satisfies your heart is to keep on rejoicing in them when all other supports for your satisfaction are falling away. When you keep rejoicing in God in the midst of suffering, it shows that God, and not other things, is the great source of your joy. If we were to go with the NIV translation for a moment, we would have to think of it not as bearing the name of Jesus myself, but rather bearing the name of Jesus to others, carrying Jesus to others in what I do and say, even in the middle of persecution or suffering. Last time I mentioned Pastor Joseph Tson, who stood up to Ceausescu's repression of Christianity in Romania back in the 1970s. In one of his books, he relates the following incident from a few years back. Often in my country, Romania, people must accept demotions in their jobs when they become Christians. If someone in a very high position is converted to Jesus Christ and joins the church, immediately the authorities will hold a public meeting to expose him as a backward creature and have him publicly demoted or fired. I had a man in an important position whom I baptized come to me and ask, Now what shall I do? 
They will convene three or four thousand people to expose me and mock me. They will give me five minutes to defend myself. How should I do it? Brother, I told him, defending yourself is the only thing you shouldn't do. This is your unique chance to tell them who you were before and what Jesus made of you, who Jesus is and what he is for you now. His face shone and he said, Brother Joseph, I know what I am going to do. And he did it well. So well that afterwards he was severely demoted. He lost almost half his salary. But he kept coming to me after that saying, Brother Joseph, you know I cannot walk in that factory now without someone coming up to me. Wherever I go, somebody pulls me in a corner, looks around to see that nobody sees him talking to me, and then whispers, Give me the address of your church, or tell me more about Jesus, or do you have a Bible for me? Whether we are suffering, whether we are being persecuted, or whether we're just going about our ordinary day-to-day -day lives, Peter says we're to live in such a way that in everything God is glorified. Glorify God in Christ's name. Secondly, when facing persecution or suffering, Peter says we must remember God's judgment, verses 17 and 18. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family, literally the house of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved... What will become of the ungodly and the sinner? When Peter speaks about judgment beginning with the house of God, he doesn't mean that God is angry with his people, and so he is using persecution to punish them. The word judgment here doesn't mean condemnation, but rather has the sense of evaluation, judging the worth or the genuineness of something. Peter is saying that while his readers may be experiencing persecution, that actually shows that they are genuine believers. Because if they weren't genuine believers, then they wouldn't be experiencing persecution. In verse 12, Peter says, Do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, literally the fiery ordeal you are suffering. And remember what Peter said about fire back in chapter 1. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. So Christians face the fire of persecution from the world, but that simply refines us and purifies us and shows the genuineness of our faith. But there is another fire here, and that is the fire of God's judgment that destroys sin. The fire of persecution that leads to refining and purifying is bad enough. How much worse, Peter says, the fire of God's destruction of sin. You see, God has determined to have a holy people for himself and to destroy sin so that it cannot enter his new creation. 
there are two Old Testament passages that Peter probably has in mind here. Firstly, in the book of Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel sees how the nation has become corrupt and how even the priests are involved in all sorts of secret sin at the temple. And in chapter 9, he has this vision. I saw six men coming from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with a deadly weapon in his hand. With them was a man clothed in linen who had a writing kit at his side. Then the Lord called to the man clothed in linen who had the writing kit at his side and said to him, Go throughout the city of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of those who grieve and lament over all the detestable things that are done in it. As I listened, he said to the others, Follow him through the city and kill without showing pity or compassion. Slaughter the old men, the young men, the women, the mothers, the children. But do not touch anyone who has the mark. Begin at my sanctuary, my house. So they began with the old men who were in front of the temple. In this vision, then, judgment begins at the house of God and spreads from there to the rest of the nation and out into the world. God is purifying his own people and he is destroying sin. And then in Malachi chapter 3, we read these words. God says to Malachi, speaking about the coming of the Messiah, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a laundress soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Again, God's purifying judgment starts with his own people, and particularly with the priests. That's why, in fact, the very next topic in Peter's letter will be Christian leaders, elders. But God's judgment begins with his own people. His judgment on his own people is intended to refine them and purify them. And then his judgment on the world is to destroy sin. Just to say that this picture is picked up again in the book of Revelation, in the description of that great tribulation that will take place before Jesus' return. You probably have heard of the beast and the mark of the beast. It's the name of the beast or the number of its name, which is put on the hands or the foreheads of those who worship the beast. Those who do not take the mark of the beast cannot buy or sell and are killed. But in chapter 14, we are told about another group, those who have the name of the Lamb and the name of his Father on their foreheads. And in the rest of the book, we see how those who have the name of the Lamb face the wrath of the beast, and those who have the mark of the beast face the wrath of the Lamb. But there are only two groups. You are going to have somebody's mark, and you are going to receive somebody's wrath. Either you will have the mark of God and experience the wrath of the beast, or you will have the mark of the beast and experience the wrath of God. And in a similar way, Peter says here 
The fact that you are being persecuted shows that you belong to God. You bear his name. And while you may experience the fire of persecution, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? What will become of the ungodly and the sinner who do not bear God's name and who will, therefore, experience the fire of his judgment? So, when I am misunderstood or excluded or ridiculed for my faith, I can take heart in knowing that this shows the genuineness of my faith. And I can take comfort in knowing that God is using this to refine me and make me more like him. I can also feel a sense of relief in knowing that no matter how painful this may be, it is as nothing compared to God's final judgment on sin, which I will escape because of my relationship with Jesus. At the same time, though, this verse should give me a fresh concern for those who are lost, even for the lost who persecute me. I mentioned Pastor Warren Wearsby a few weeks back. Besides his book on servant leadership, he wrote a commentary on every book of the Bible. And this is what he writes about this verse in First Peter. When a believer suffers, he experiences glory and knows that there will be greater glory in the future. But a sinner who causes that suffering is only filling up the measure of God's wrath more and more. Instead of being concerned only about ourselves, we need to be concerned about the lost sinners around us. Our present fiery trial is nothing compared with the flaming fire that shall punish the lost when Jesus returns in judgment. Times of persecution are times of opportunity for a loving witness to those who persecute us. It wasn't the earthquake that brought the Philippian jailer to Christ. The earthquake only frightened him into almost committing suicide. No, it was Paul's loving concern for him that brought the jailer to faith in Christ. As Christians, we don't seek for vengeance on those who've hurt us. Rather, we pray for them and seek to lead them to Jesus Christ. I often moan about how wicked this world is. But where is my concern for people who are lost? Where is my sense of urgency? Do I pray for those who are lost? Do I seek to share my faith with them? When persecution or suffering comes, I need to remember God's judgment. Thirdly, when facing persecution or suffering, Peter says, rest in God's sovereignty. Verse 19. So then those who suffer according to God's will. We don't have time to look at this in detail. We dealt quite extensively with this topic when we looked at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. But just to say that Peter doesn't mean here that God specifically sends us suffering. God is not behind evil, although he is fully in control of evil. The Bible illustrates this principle most vividly in the book of Job. In the book, God is shown to be completely in charge. 
He is sovereign. Satan and the angels come and present themselves before God's throne. Satan has to ask God's permission to take away Job's children and possessions and health. And yet at the same time, the book clearly demonstrates that God himself does not inflict these things on Job. He is not the source of evil. God is in control of evil, but is not responsible for it. One writer says, This is a brilliant way to get across the truth that while nothing happens outside of God's plan, God does not will evil things like he wills the good. I'm finding great comfort at the moment, just recognizing that when things come into my life, none of them have taken God by surprise. He knew all about this particular thing that has now come across my path. He is in control of it, and he will even use this in my life to make me more like him. This situation or set of circumstances is an opportunity for me to face adversity with him. A couple of weeks ago in our service, we sang the hymn by Francis Havergal, Like a River Glorious is God's Perfect Peace. And the hymn includes this line, Every joy or sorrow falleth from above, traced upon our dial, by the King of Love. Again, he is not the author of sorrow, but he is in control of it. John Newton was another hymn writer in the 1700s. He'd been the captain of a slave ship, but his life was miraculously turned around when he became a Christian during a terrible storm off the coast of Ireland. He later became an Anglican minister. He's best known for his hymn, Amazing grace, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. We've got a number of his writings still today, including a letter he wrote to a friend of his whose sister was ill. And in the letter, he says this, I wish you may be enabled to leave her and yourself and all your concerns in his hands. He has a sovereign right to do with us as he pleases, and if we consider what we are, surely we shall confess we have no reason to complain. And to those who seek him, his sovereignty is exercised in a way of grace. All shall work together for good. Everything is needful that he sends. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. It's possible to use the idea of God's sovereignty as a club which hurts people. God is in control. He's sending this into your life. But Newton doesn't intend this as a club, but rather as a comfort. All shall work together for good. Everything is needful that he sends. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. God is in control. And at the same time, he's not the author of evil. One Bible commentator points out that we seem to assume that God knows what he is doing when we are happy and well. 
We need equally to learn to assume that he knows what he's doing, even in trouble and hardship and persecution and suffering. Rest in God's sovereignty. Fourthly, when facing persecution or suffering, Peter says, commit yourself to your faithful creator. Verse 19, so then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator. It's interesting that Peter tells us here to commit ourselves to God our creator and not God our saviour or God our judge, as he does earlier in this letter. But this idea of God being our creator is a very important one in times of suffering and can help us too in terms of God's sovereignty. In fact, it's a picture that Jesus used too in this context of persecution. In part one of this sermon, under the heading, Don't Be Surprised, we looked at Matthew chapter 10, where Jesus sends out the 12 disciples on a short-term missions trip, and he warns them all about the persecution they will face, the fact that they will be arrested and flogged in the synagogues, that brother will betray brother to death, that children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death, that the disciples will be hated by everyone because of Jesus. And right in the middle of this description of persecution, Jesus says in verse 29, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. In effect, Jesus tells his disciples that in the middle of persecution, they are to commit themselves to their faithful creator. I think that there is some real wisdom in us remembering the fact that we are just creatures. Sometimes on a morning I go out into the garden and sit for a while and look at all of the other creatures who are waking up and who are in a sense presenting themselves before God for that day. I remind myself that God knew that sparrow when it was just an egg God is going to provide food for that sparrow today, and that sparrow will not fall to the ground apart from God, without God knowing and seeing and being there to catch it. And what is true of that sparrow is true of me too. I tend to think that the whole universe revolves around me, but I'm just a tiny speck in this world, and this world is a tiny grain of sand in a vast universe. There is a God, and I am not him. It's interesting to me that in the Old Testament, when Job is going through the most horrific suffering, it was God speaking to him about the created order that changed Job's perspective. Many people think that the book of Job is God's answer to the question of suffering, but at the end of the book, when God finally speaks, he doesn't provide any answers. Instead, he asks Job a whole lot of questions. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set, or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? 
Can you bind the beautiful Pleiades? Can you loose the cords of Orion? Can you bring forth the constellations in their seasons, or lead out the bear with its cubs? Do you know the laws of the heavens? Can you set up God's dominion over the earth? Do you hunt the prey for the lioness, and satisfy the hunger of the lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in a thicket? Who provides food for the ravens when its young cry out to God and wander about for lack of food? And Job replies, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. And God says, stand up on your feet like a man. I've still got two chapters to go. And he continues, Job, can you make a hippopotamus? Can you tame a crocodile? Can you make a pet of him like a bird or put him on a leash for your girls? If you lay a hand on it, you will remember the struggle and never do it again. And at the end of another two chapters of questions about the created order, Job finally says, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Just to say that that doesn't mean Job's questioning and pleading and raging, as recorded in the book, are wrong. In fact, God specifically says to Job's friends, I'm angry with you because you've not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So we are allowed to grieve and lament and question and plead in times of suffering. But remembering the fact that we are God's creatures, that he is much bigger than we are, can help us a great deal when we face persecution and suffering. One of the things that I enjoy doing is watching David Attenborough documentaries. I see that the series Our Planet is actually available on YouTube at the moment. I don't know if it's there legally or not, but I'm enjoying watching it at the moment. The cinematography is astounding. The music is majestic. David Attenborough is not a believer which I find very sad. It's tragically amusing, really. Every now and again, he says something like, how these birds know that this water is here or in what direction they need to fly, we have no idea. When my girls were a bit younger and watched the documentaries with me, we would all chime in together at that point and say, we know, we know, God tells them. I found that actually... My times of watching David Attenborough are really times of worship. I see the vastness of creation and the minuteness of creation and the order of creation and the perfection and the splendor of creation. And I then entrust myself to my faithful creator. And finally, when facing persecution or suffering, Peter says we are to keep doing good. Verse 19. So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good.
This past week, I was reading an article by a lady who spoke about the inward focus that we often have when we suffer. It's pretty natural and normal. All of our time and energy and focus go into just trying to survive whatever it is we're going through. It's perfectly understandable. And if there's someone listening to this today who is suffering right now, I certainly don't want to add to your suffering by making you feel guilty too. But this lady simply pointed to John chapter 19 where we read these words. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother. And when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, Here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. And this lady said, In the midst of his arduous pain and suffering, Jesus wanted to make provisions for his mother. He was able to look outside of his own circumstances to consider his mother's needs. And he called upon his beloved disciple John to be the one to care for her. This is the love we should be willing to show to others in the midst of our own suffering. As Christians, we're not exempt from serving others because we're going through a difficult season of life. So if I'm receiving treatment at a hospital, I can look around me at the needs of my doctor and the nurses and my fellow patients. I can seek to serve them even in the midst of my own personal suffering. And sometimes that can transform suffering to joy. This also has implications for when we are suffering persecution. One of the Bible commentators on First Peter, Karen Jobes, writes this, It is easiest to do good when things are going well, when we're prospering and healthy. But when we suffer as the consequence of doing good, how unreasonable it seems to continue to do the very things that are causing pain. And yet it is precisely our continuing to do good to those who persecute us that can lead them to faith in Christ. As you can see, there's an awful lot for us in these seven short verses, at least an hour's worth, added to the points that we looked at last time. The Bible tells us that when we face persecution and suffering, we are to glorify God in Christ's name. Remember God's judgment. Rest in God's sovereignty. Commit ourselves to our Creator and keep on doing good. May God strengthen us to do that even in the week that lies ahead. Amen.